Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. I don't mean to shock you, but the powerful might not be looking out for you. Governments cannot always be trusted to act in our best interests. They sometimes do things that can even hurt us. And they tend to hide stuff like that from us. And when they need to, they can actually actively deceive us. And sometimes the media helps them with that. On those points, I agree with the lunatics. It was not so long ago that we were told that despite the fact that COVID-19 first emerged from Wuhan, China, which is also where China has its only level four coronavirus lab, despite that, the virus probably came from animals in a wet market. Nothing to do with the lab. And not only were we told to pay no attention to that level four virus lab, we were told that it was racist to dwell on that. And yes, the world was seeing uh, a big spike in anti-Asian sentiment and violence, one which then-President Trump was happy to fuel. You know, so the way it looked was like he was on one side and science was on the other. 27 scientists in February 2020 who 
all signed a statement in one of the most respected medical journals in the world, The Lancet. They said that they stood in solidarity with unfairly targeted scientists in China, and they stood together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. So, you know, after that, media reports deferred to the expertise of these scientists. And after that, it, it, it kind of felt like you would have to be a conspiracy theorist, an anti-vaxxer, a, a climate change denier to still dwell on the lab leak theory. But now... The lab leak theory is back. In fact, there is more evidence supporting it than ever. Turns out that a key organizer of that statement from all those scientists that that ran in The Lancet, the guy had links to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He ran a U.S. research organization that worked with the Wuhan lab on manipulating viruses, something that readers of the statement in The Lancet were not told. Also, Over the summer, the Wall Street Journal reported on intelligence reports that some lab workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology got really sick back in November 2019. Just last week, The Intercept published a leaked proposal that was submitted to the U.S. military research agency DARPA in 2018. This was a proposed plan to conduct high-risk coronavirus research, inserting human-specific cleavage sites whatever those are, into bat coronaviruses. And though DARPA rejected that proposal, scientists contacted by The Intercept noted that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was already engaged in the kind of genetic engineering work that was described in that proposal. There's lots more, lots more stuff from reputable sources, all about scientists manipulating bat coronaviruses. You know, if you have the time and the inclination to dig into it and to learn what it all means. And there is more stuff still that you can find about governments misleading and even deceiving the public, if you have time for that. Well, my guest today had the time. You have heard her on the show before, but it was very different. Uh, Last time, she was talking with me about a story from the Canadian book industry. Her new book is not about that. Uh, Elaine Dewar's new book, on the origin of the deadliest pandemic in 100 years is a deep dive into the lab leak theory and into documented cover-up actions from both the Chinese and American governments, and it is a deep look into Canada's own Level 4 coronavirus lab in Winnipeg and Canada's own cover-up. Elaine Dewar is not a scientist, but she is a rigorous researcher, and her work on this story pouring through readily available information and finding things that everybody else seems to have missed has already produced one major scoop, which the Globe and Mail independently verified and published. And Elaine Dewar will tell you all about that and all the rest in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Kathy Gear. Steve Lecuyer, Hoa Luke, Rowan Burge, Alex Passy, Mike Raffagalo, Darcy Hansen, and Cheryl. My name is Cheryl, and I'm from Calgary, Alberta. I listen to Canada Land because they have a clear moral compass when it comes to what they report, and that is something that's becoming harder and harder to find. 
Also, please give me more Ryan McMahon. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away, but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Elaine, maybe the best way to begin is for you to take us back to 2012 and tell us how this all started. So... We can't say 100% for sure that in 2012, the SARS-CoV-2 virus made its way into human lungs. But we have a pretty good idea that it may have. So what happened was, in the province of Yunnan, China, which is in the southwest, about a 1,000 kilometers from a place called Wuhan, three miners went to work in a bat cave slash copper mine their job being to clean out the unbelievable pile of bat feces that had accumulated so that people could come in and work the mine. Three guys went in, three guys got very ill, went to the hospital, three more guys came in, got very ill, and meanwhile the first three guys died. It became pretty clear to the doctors who were investigating their condition that they had been struck by some kind of infectious disease which created a truly dreadful pneumonia, gastric issues, heart issues, and that this pneumonia was peculiar and that it was pretty far down in the lungs. So they assumed it might have been a SARS-like virus. SARS had happened in China in 2003, and everybody who had anything to do with public health was on the lookout for SARS to return. Since SARS itself had moved from bats to probably a civet cat and from there to human beings, again in Yunnan, it was assumed that this was another version of SARS. And so samples were sent to various experts in China 
Among them, Shi Zhengli, who is the leading coronavirus expert now in China, and even then was among the leadership. She was sent something on the order of 13 samples of those miners' lungs. Never published a word about what she found. And we think began to do experiments both with those samples, but also sent teams of her students into that mine to see what else could be found in the way of SARS-like coronaviruses, which were sequenced. Eventually, some were published, but very much later, like 2018 and again in 2020. So when SARS-CoV-2 arrived in the world in approximately November of 2019, among the earlier people sent samples from the lungs of people who became ill was the same Shi Zhengli in the same Wuhan Institute of Virology lab. She and her colleagues published a paper in Nature. I think it appeared on February 3rd of 2020, but it was first made available to what's called a preprint site and then found its way through peer review in Nature on January 20th of 2020. In that paper, she said that the closest known genome sequence to SARS-CoV-2 was something called and you're not going to believe this, RAT G13. RAT G13 was pulled from the sample of feces from a bat in that Mojang cave. We believe it was sampled actually in 2013. She published not a word about it until 2016, and even then it was only what's called the RDRP, a little piece of the spike protein. She finally sequenced the entirety in 2018, but didn't publish a word about it until SARS was upon us. So the question is, was RAT G13 close enough to become the ancestor of SARS-CoV-2? Did something happen in her lab that allowed it to become SARS-CoV-2? Or were those original samples, which she never published a word about, the place of origin for SARS-CoV-2? And in my book, I suggest it was the samples. So what? So what? what? Escaped from a lab is the origin of this unbelievably horrible pandemic. You have an answer to the question that the whole world has been asking. Was the Not just me, Cookie. Lots of people think this is where it originated. Yeah. I think that's the first time I've been called Cookie. On the, well, on the... you know, let it not be the last. The world wants to know, this is one of the biggest questions in the world right now, did COVID come from, I don't know, a bat kissing a pangolin, the wet market theory versus the lab theory? The wet market theory was crap from the beginning. The earliest known papers that were published by Chinese scholars in that first thrush of papers that all were sent to learned journals on the 20th of January of 2020 the most important paper, which was the epidemiological paper, said 44% of the earliest known victims of SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan had absolutely nothing to do with the wet market. And in fact, the first known patient who was deemed to have become ill on the 1st of December, absolutely nothing to do with the Wuhan seafood market. If the, if the market had any role, it was to amplify the spread because lots of people came and went from there. But it didn't start there. 
on the superficial surface level that I tend to analyze things, which is how the media talks about them, this went from an initial open question, well, we've got this wet market theory or, or there's this, there just happens to be a level four virus lab in Wuhan where the virus started spreading, which could it possibly be? And my gut instinct was like, I, probably the lab uh, makes more sense to me. But then very quickly on that surface level, that became a forbidden thing. And, yeah. and it became politically a question that uh, conspiracy theorists um, talk about, that, that it came from the lab, because that had implications that this was a bioweapon of China um, and that it had and, – and saying that associated you too closely with a guy who pronounced that word China, um, <laughs> right? We didn't want to be like that guy. So right. to, to suggest that the, the lab theory was valid became verboten. For many months, and then sometime, I don't know if it was maybe three months ago or so, I know that that somehow became an acceptable question to ask, and there were some publications that that were putting forward, no, actually, we need to look back at the lab theory. What does this matter? If it came from the lab, does that mean that this was a bioweapon inflicted upon the world by China? No, and in fact, the first people who mentioned the possibility of a lab leak were very serious scientists in Wuhan who knew that there were two labs in Wuhan, which is in the middle of China and nowhere near Mojiang, a thousand kilometers from Mojiang, and a thousand kilometers in the other direction from the next closest known published sequences, which were found in Zushan by a military team. Two scientists published that the most likely place of origin for SARS-CoV-2 was either the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has the largest known collection in the world of coronaviruses of all sorts, or the Wuhan CDC, which had moved on December 1 very close to the seafood market, and also had people within that institution who for the last 15 years had been seeking out coronaviruses in bats all over China and doing it in an unprotected way. So often going into a bat cave, not wearing a hazmat suit, not wearing a mask, um, exposing their students, and then hauling bats, literally live bats, back to both of these labs. So the question becomes, why did the idea that it might have come from a lab get crushed so quickly? And the answer was that both China and the United States had been funding work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology for some time and had a vested interest in shutting that line of inquiry down as hard and as fast as possible, which they proceeded to do. It wasn't until almost the end of December of 2020 that a guy named Nicholson Baker wrote a piece in New York magazine going through some of the arguments to and fro about whether a lab leak was a reasonable thesis or a crazy one, or whether there was any evidence at all about uh, a spillover from bats to a pangolin or bats to a civet cat or bats to anything. And his answer was, you know, there's not a lot of evidence for a spillover, but there is a good suggestion that a lab leak might be possible. So that started people thinking. And by May of 2021, another really important piece was published by a guy named Nicholas Wade, who used to be the science guy for the New York Times, a really serious 
science reporter. Before he went to the New York Times, he was an editor at Nature, and before that he was an editor at Science. These are leading peer-reviewed journals in the world. So huge reputation. And he wrote in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists that the lab leak thesis was extremely likely that the nature of the genome suggested that there had been a lab manipulation. That really woke people up. And the next bit of information was that the United States announced through the Wall Street Journal that they had really quite good intelligence from an allied intelligence agency that three people at the Wuhan Institute of Virology had to be treated in hospital in November of 2019. And we know from the way the genome sequences became available that the most probable date for the first infection was the middle of November of 2019. That really set up a storm because it suggested not only that the Wuhan Institute of Virology had been doing the kind of work that could lead to this result, not only that it had been doing it in a way that was unsafe, not in the level four, but in a level two, which is the kind of containment you see in a university lab, it suggested a pathway for the virus to enter the human community. And then, of course, the WHO had done a publication based on a joint study between international experts that China had accepted to come to China and its own researchers, which made a mockery of an inquiry into whether or not there had been a lab leak. In fact, they did no inquiry whatsoever, and yet did not produce anything in the way of normal epidemiological information about the first groups who became infected, withheld data that should have been obviously made available from the first three weeks in December from sentinel hospitals who were, you know, experiencing a wave of people coming in with pneumonia. All of that stuff was withheld by China. So you now have a possible pathway, a likely place where this could have erupted from, sloppy practices in that place, and all of a sudden the lab leak theory is now kosher. And what's so interesting about that is that the people who had actually published in Nature that the lab leak idea was ridiculous, W. Ian Lipkin of Columbia University, all began to backtrack on their paper saying, oh, gee, uh, hmm, may maybe it is possible that it leaked from the lab. So we went from lab leak as a conspiracy theory that people with tinfoil hats, you know, would ascribe to, to the very people who had made the lab leak theory radioactive, saying, actually, it's probable, it's possible, it needs to be investigated. A not insignificant portion of that might as well have been in Bulgarian <laughs> for me. Myself, I thought it was fantastically lucid. It's entirely on the receiving end that information was lost. But some things did come through, and you'll tell me if I got the gist of this. Sure. Essentially, it's not just that this originated not in the wet market, but in a cave in China in 2012. What you're saying is not just that it was the cave, but that the cave then goes to the lab, and that's where they messed with it. And and, yeah. and in the lab, they adapted it. And No, no I'm not saying that. You're, okay. I'm saying that it adapted itself to human beings in those miners' lungs. So one of the really interesting pieces of information that came out sort of in the middle of 2020 20, was a paper done by a former Canadian by the name of Alina Chan, 
who is at the Broad Institute at Harvard, which is a very famous institution, well-renowned for its genomic studies, who compared the rate of mutation of the original SARS, so in 2003 we had a small pandemic called SARS, with the rate of mutation of SARS-CoV-2. So rate of mutation relates to how quickly a virus is adapting to a new host. If it's well-adapted from the get-go, the rate of mutation is really slow. If it's not well-adapted from the get-go, the rate of mutation will be very quick as the virus makes itself comfortable in a new environment, finds its way into as many um, receptive cells as possible, and changes itself by basically random mutation hitting upon something that works, and that something that works basically takes over. So SARS-CoV-2 changed barely at all for the first quarter of its sojourn among human beings, which suggests to most epidemiologists that by the time it hit in Wuhan in the middle of November, it was already perfectly human adapted. And the question then becomes, well, where did that happen? Did it happen down the street in the wet market? Apparently not, because there were not a ton of pneumonia cases up until December. Did it happen in Yunnan and somebody get on a train and bring it to Wuhan? Absolutely no evidence of SARS-CoV-2 in animals or bats in Wuhan, and the Chinese researchers worked their buns off to try and find some kind of animal evidence and came up with nothing. So by the time COVID hit and the pandemic hit, it was already ready for prime time. It was well adapted for fucking... It loved humans. And, and that had to have happened somewhere. And your hypothesis is that it happened in the lungs. It's not my hypothesis. The credit belongs to a guy named Jonathan Latham and his partner, Allison Wilson, who are both PhDs, one in the virology of plants and the other in virology. Of All credit due, but who cares? What does it matter? What's the difference? The reason it matters is that if this spilled over from animals, we need to find that animal toot sweet and we need to call it because otherwise there is a whole reservoir of SARS-CoV-2 lurking out there, changing out there, and making itself dangerous for the rest of us for a long time to come. If it came from a lab, we need to find out we need to find out what that lab was doing, why it was doing it, and we need to stop that lab from wait, doing it in wait. future. I'm confused again. I feel like we now have a lab theory and a lung theory. Are those the same theories? They are the same theories. So essentially, if it's true that this developed in the lungs of the original uh, patient zeros of this thing. The miners. The miners from 2012. That's good news because it means that there isn't some animal out there that's going to reinfect us again. Correct. And what your book puts forth is that that is the case. Strongly suggests? Strongly suggests. I mean, you know, I, I wasn't able to go over to China and see the lab notes. So nothing in your book is suggesting, because before I thought the big question was hinging on, was this just a force majeure act of God? Hey, you know, wet markets happen. Pangolins kiss bats, nothing you can do about it. Or was China making a bioweapon and, we, and there's somebody to blame and we're going to be in a new Cold it's War? It's not either or. That was the question, right? Yeah, well, no, that was one of the questions. Yeah. And, and it was only one. The real question is, 
what are we doing in science these days that would make it possible for people to do experiments that jack up the capacity of viruses to infect human beings? We have been doing those kinds of experiments, which are called gain-of-function experiments, for a very long time now. Uh, the most famous one was done by a guy named Ron Fouchier uh, at Erasmus in the Netherlands in 2011, in which he took an avian flu virus that normally doesn't infect ferrets. He found a way to infect those ferrets, and then he found a way to let the virus passage change uh, going from ferret to ferret until finally the ferrets could infect each other without direct contact. That's called gain of function. You make an animal that normally would not get infected, get them infected, and then you find a way to jack it up further. Ferrets and bats and rats, oh my. Uh, to boil that down, what you're saying is that there is a practice in science where scientists basically help shitty viruses get more dangerous? Yeah, and the argument is that we're doing that because we need to know before nature does it what nature might do. And is that part of what you're suggesting in this book? That, that, that it, yeah, it, it didn't think... just percolate in the lungs and then leak out and it was an accident. No. Um, it percolated in the lungs and the samples went to a lab that does this kind of experimentation, yeah. specifically on bats, but also on other animals like macaques and like ferrets, who are what's called model animals, as in if you can humanize that animal, you can see what it might do in a human being if it gets into a human being. The problem is that at every step along the way in those kinds of experiments, you can, in fact, infect the human being who's doing the work. Okay, so here we have our Jurassic Park-like scientists who are Correct. so busy uh, doing what they can, they don't ask why or if they should. It's not that they're trying to make a bioweapon, it's just that they're fucking around in stuff that we might have a scientific ethics debate about whether they should be doing that or not. If that is, in fact, how this pandemic started, it's far more than a scientific ethics debate. It's a bloody disaster. So we can, There's we, millions of people dead. We can blame people if, if, that's, if that's how we it We can happens. blame people and we can adapt what we do. Okay. And we can regulate what we do and we can decide what we should not do. I'll move on to arguing with you once I understand what you're saying. Okay. I think I kind of get it now. Wait, no, there's parts that I still don't get. So part of it is just like, where did this come from? And we're reframing that conversation a little bit, but, but, but you're still saying, no, there is this other theory, 2012 cave, gestates in the lungs, adapts itself to humans, gets amped up in the lab. The lab is culpable for making this. They weren't purposely weaponizing it, but perhaps they were making it more and more dangerous in a way that they shouldn't. And then it leaks. And then we get to what you document, which is this a cover-up, which is an yeah. extensive cover-up of the truth. An absolutely determined cover -up. And this is what you posit and document. And this is what Nicholson Baker, who's also a writer of fiction, and now you have answers and research, answers that the entire world is looking for these answers, but you found them. No. What I did was assemble what has been published in public places. You remember a journalist by the name of I.F. Stone? Does that ring a bell with you? Sure, Izzy Stone. So Izzy Stone, he read public documents. Because we were in a pandemic, I was in a situation where getting on a plane was not going to happen. Going to interview people was almost impossible because people were not in their offices anymore. They were working from home. So if I wanted to investigate this story and follow it up, the only recourse I had was to read published, peer-reviewed literature and preprint literature that would eventually find its way to peer-reviewed journals. And that's what I did. What I did was an assembly of public information. I.F. Stone said 
who cares what they say? Let's look at what they do. Precisely. And he was able to do this from far away from Washington, and he hit scoops that put the mainstream media to shame. Correct. You, for your pandemic project, hold up as we all were, right. put your brain and your research skills towards just assembling stuff that was out there, yep. but maybe not written in a way that a person like me or slightly smarter than me could comprehend, and you found patterns and you found a cover-up. And it's confirmed by what some other people have found. And now some of your work has informed Globe and Mail reporting. What is this cover-up? Tell me what you found in terms of the cover-up. So in the very beginning, as the first patients were winding their way into Wuhan hospitals in December, three of the major commercial genome sequencing labs were asked to figure out what was in these samples in these patients' lungs. And they all acknowledged that it was a SARS-like coronavirus novel, in other words, never seen before. They were immediately asked to return those samples or destroy them. So the cover-up started right there, because the way you figure out how a virus has erupted into a human population is by getting the first samples you can, evaluating that sample and figuring out what in nature, what that has already been published that you can compare it to. And then you can figure out what strain it is, what species it comes from, and something about its characteristics. As soon as the National Health Commission of China and the CDC of China said, turn in your samples, in effect, that was a signal that suppression had begun. And the suppression continued. So it wasn't until the 10th of January that the first public genome sequence of SARS-CoV-2 was made available. And it was not made available by the China CDC or by the National Health Commission. It was made available by a researcher by the name of Eddie Holmes from the University of Sydney with an appointment at the University of Fudan in Shanghai and his colleague in Shanghai. And they put it on a blog called virological.org, which is published out of the University of Edinburgh. Sure, hot blog. Hot blog. But the reason they did that was that there was clearly an inhibition about publishing anything going on in China. Two days later, three more genome sequences were published by official sources in China. But had those guys not put it up, we wouldn't have seen a genome sequence for God knows how long. And then on the 20th of January, six days after officials within the government of China acknowledged that they were in the middle of a pandemic, not an emergency, a pandemic, they finally allowed a group of five papers to be submitted to major international journals, as I told you, Nature, Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, and another one called EMI. So they, in effect, sat on that information for a long time. Now, Shi Zheng Li who is their lead coronavirus person now, was at a conference in Shanghai on the 30th of December. She gets a phone call from her boss at the Wuhan Institute of Virology and is told to return immediately to deal with it. Her first thought, she tells Scientific American some months later, is, oh, God, I hope it didn't leak from my lab. Now, there's a reason why a person would have that as a first thought. Because they work in a virus lab? Because they work in a virus lab and they've had leaks before. 
I mean, the first part would get you there. If you worked in a virus lab, you're probably worried about the viruses leaking. Well, no, not necessarily. If you're really convinced that you've been working on this stuff in a level four and the containment is pretty much perfect, you're not going to worry about that. But, of course, she knew that she'd been working on this stuff in a level two and a level three. There's pretty extensive documentation in your book that that there was a cover-up. And it would take us a long time to go through it, but it's pretty compelling my understanding of why that would take place is like I can understand that the government of China would want that covered up because if we found out that their scientists had a role in, you know, jacking this thing up and making it more virulent and spreadable, we might be mad at China. So they've got a motive to cover this up. And you should recall that at that time, China and the U.S. were trying to work out a trade agreement. Right. And they came to that agreement, I believe, on the 16th of January, the following Monday boom, out come these papers, and Xi Jinping finally admits that this virus has person-to-person transmission. And two days later, they lock down Wuhan. And far from being in a position of trying to expose China, uh, America is complicit by your documentation in this cover-up because they also are... Because they were funding Xi Zhengli. Because they're, they're a part of this, of this lab to begin with. And they're doing this kind of work. And in fact, Xi Zhengli was doing work that was very difficult to do in the United States because the United States actually has regulations on gain-of-function research. And so if you're getting NIH money, or in Xi Zhengli's case, also USAID money to do this research... It's easier to do it in China than it is to do it in the United States. Okay, so both China and America have something to hide, and you write about how they hit it. What about Canada? Ah, Canada. So when I was doing the early stages of the research, there was a, a, another conspiracy circulating out there that when the National Microbiology Laboratory in Winnipeg in 2019 sent a series of Ebola and Nipah viruses to the Wuhan Institute of Virology in China. Perhaps they also sent SARS-CoV-2, which somehow leaked. So the conspiracy theory of the moment was somehow the Winnipeg lab had something to do with the generation of this virus. Because we do have a level four virus lab. We have one level four in this country, and it is a very interesting level four which does both human and animal pathogen studies under the same roof. Nobody else does that. That level four had two people working in it, one called Shang Yu Chu and her husband, Ketting Cheng, who had organized the shipment of those viruses, Ebola being really nasty. And there had been an eruption of concern about them, which led to them being suspended, their security clearances withdrawn, and their removal from the NML in July of 2019. It took some months before Karen Pauls at the CBC, through an access to information application, was able to find out, A, that all of these viruses had been sent, and B, exactly who did what when, because she was able to follow the emails back and forth between the staff at NML as they were organizing this shipment. What I was looking at, was there anything in the NML's record that would suggest an unreasonable or unusual relationship with the Wuhan Institute of Virology? And what I discovered was a really unusual relationship between the NML and Chinese military scientists, which was totally unexpected to me and blew me off my chair. Because to work in the NML, you must have a secret security clearance. 
And as I'm sure you can imagine, it would not be reasonable that members of a foreign military of a country not our friend would have secret security access to that lab. And yet, I found a ton of papers. You found that a Chinese military figure had security access to Canada's National Microbiology Laboratory. What I found was that a woman by the name of Chen Wei had done two major papers with Cheng Yu the woman marched out of the lab, one as recently as 2020. So after the security clearance for Q was withdrawn, she was still able to access data to produce a paper, which was submitted, I believe, in March of 2020, uh, so fully seven months after her security clearance was withdrawn, and that that person, Chen Wei, was in fact a major general in the People's Liberation Army, that she is their leading bioweapons expert, and she is in particular an expert on the creation of vaccines. She created an Ebola vaccine, which was tested in Winnipeg, and she created the first SARS-CoV-2 vaccine that was injected into soldiers in the early part of 2020. To review my lesson... uh Sorry, am I lecturing? I don't mean to. No, I'm just uh, absorbing. A Chinese major general with a specific expertise in... Bioweapons. In bioweapons is connected to the level four lab in Winnipeg and worked directly with Changyu Q and... They were the... the, uh not the lead authors, the last authors on the paper, meaning the senior supervising authors of that piece of work. So these are scientists working together, though one is a major general, but but this is a... But this is a secret lab. This is a secret lab. And the two, the couple, Chang Yu Qiu and Keding Cheng, are fired for some reason and escorted off of the lab. They hadn't been fired. They'd been suspended. Oh. They'd been fired by the University of Manitoba where they had adjunct status and they had been teaching all of these pupils who came from China, no one seemed to know who these pupils were, but it, it then transpires that a bunch of them must have been with the military in China because when their published papers came out, those were their affiliations stated on the papers. So this is suggesting some kind of like Chinese state military infiltration of this facility in Winnipeg. What, 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 what does China want with a virus lab in Winnipeg? Aha. Interesting question. So... It's a level four in Winnipeg. Ebola is the kind of pathogen that may only be studied in a level four because there is very little in the way of um, medicines or treatments that uh, allow you to quickly interfere with someone who's infected with Ebola and save their lives. Ebola has been a kind of focus at the NML for some time. They made a vaccine that was licensed to Merck. And um, the problem for China was that it didn't have a level four. The French built one for them starting after SARS, the original in 2003. But it wasn't yet ready until 2017 for any kind of study. And it wasn't allowed to import into China. Where, where did the French build this? They built it in Wuhan at the Wuhan Institute of so Virology. So before there was a Wuhan Institute of Virology? The Wuhan Institute of Virology goes back to 1958. But it's a big campus with lots of labs. Before the Wuhan Institute is a level four... We got one in Winnipeg. Oh, yeah. And that's why they wanted in to Winnipeg. Right. Why? Because their level four, even when it was built, even when it was functional, they still didn't have permission from the National Health Commission of China to import Ebola 
to work on in that lab. They needed a lab that was level four status to do that work, and they did it in Winnipeg. And why did those scientists get suspended? We would like to know. Everybody would like to know what the actual reason was. I would like to think that it wasn't just this relationship with the military that is in public places that everyone can see. I would like to think it was more than that, but I suspect that's all it was. That, you know, the Public Health Agency of Canada is so lax in its supervision of that lab that nobody noticed what was being published by its leading scientists. So this is no Canada's in on it thing. This is a, hey, wait a second, these scientists are collaborating and we're doing research with a Chinese military general who probably shouldn't be in our lab. Definitely should not be in our lab. What with her bioweapon expertise? We don't know she was physically in the lab, but we do know she had data access. And a security clearance deals with both, not just physical access, but to the data which is produced by that laboratory. And to return to my question some decades ago about Canada's role in the cover-up, who was it who refused to answer questions? It was the president of PHAC, a a public health agency of Canada. His name is Ian Stewart. And before he was parachuted into the Public Health Agency of Canada, he was the head of the NRC, which had a relationship with a company called CanSino Biologics, which provided the cell line upon which Chen Wei developed her Ebola vaccine and developed later her SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. And he stood in Parliament and proudly said, I ain't telling you shit. He said, the Privacy Act precludes me from giving you the information you require, which was the House had passed a resolution demanding all of the documentation, all of the email traffic that led to their firing in January of 2021. And he refused to hand over unredacted documents. And the House rose for the summer break and subsequently the election before the Speaker could decide whether or not to send the sergeant-at-arms to his offices to grab those documents. Is there a legitimate reason, a non-scary conspiracy reason, why he would not want to hand that information over? The answer he gave when asked was that it would be embarrassing for Canada among its allies and that there were national security implications. But the truth is not necessarily that we're in on some conspiracy with China and America to manufacture biohazard weapons. More likely that just we messed up and didn't realize that this was That we messed up and didn't realize that a major general and an unfriendly power was having that kind of relationship with a secret lab. It's just ridiculous. Miraculously, I think I'm following this, but here's my next question. What does this have to do with the price of bread? The the price of bread being COVID, because we're missing a link here between they got suspended in 2019. You're talking about Ebola. Do you have anything solid linking this Winnipeg lab? Yep. What what do you got? They did papers with the Wuhan Institute of Virology people, with Shi Zhengli's lab. And in fact, in 2017, when the U.S. State Department says that the military were starting to move in on the Wuhan Institute of Virology lab, Shang Tu had five trips to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to help train their staff. So the question becomes, trained to do what? And I think, although I'm not sure about this, that trained to do what was working with macaques who are very difficult to work with. Tell me about it. And there was a problem in the WIV, according to Shi Zhengli. Their animal labs at the level three level were too small to work with macaques. They needed to be worked on in a level four. And Sheng Ju Q had great experience and clearly they did not. 
So not only is our Winnipeg lab having a bunch of military from China working on papers, which are published in public places, but our leading pathogens vaccine person is in there helping train their staff. Now, why would that be? Don't know. Makes no sense. This is where you don't have a hypothesis. I have no hypothesis. It looks to me, when I look at the pattern of Shang Yu Qiu and Ketting Cheng's arrival in Canada and when and why, their movement into the NML, it looks to me as if they were specifically in that lab for the reason of having influence over what it did and perhaps sharing information from what was done there. The problem here is that we don't know what information has been derived that hasn't been published. All I can follow is what's in the public sphere. I have no idea what was worked on but not published. Your book presents new evidence connections. It doesn't present conclusions. The book is an exploration of the nature of the science as it has been done over the last several years. Uh Uh-huh. And what it really points to is a corruption of scientific publishing in a way that is truly frightening. I mean, if you remember all the way through the pandemic, every politician stood up and said, I'm following the science. As if science is a unipolar arrow to the future. Science, as you know, it's a multifaceted argument. Scientists are human beings. They have the same sort of foibles and the same beauty as other human beings. They are not an elevated species without interests. They have interests. And the publications, Nature, The Lancet, almost lent themselves to the propaganda purposes, the rewriting of the SARS-CoV-2 narrative by the government of China. And we really need to start asking questions about how that works. Science, when practiced in good faith, is very imperfect, is an argument can be very wrong at times. Sure. But you're saying something beyond that. You're saying that science is not immune from political interference, and that's what happened here. And corruption. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) Can I go home now? (laughs) I'm not sure. Is my PhD defense complete? (laughs) God help you if I'm the one you're uh, defending it to. Look, this has been boiled down in more simplistic terms, but it does seem like maybe we've gotten distracted on this concept of, was this a bioweapon? Exactly. Forget about that. Just look at what the nature of the scientific exposition has been. It's been this notion that you can prevent pandemics by grabbing viruses out of nature, taking them to a lab, jacking them up to see what they can be made to do in humans, and then hoping to goodness that your lab security is sufficient to keep what you've made out of the human population. As mm-hmm. one leading guy in the United States, a guy named Ebright, says, this is like lighting a match in a gas-filled room. It's asking for it. Thank you. You're welcome. That is your Canada Land episode. If you like it, spread the word about it and support us. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read the things you send to us. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was made by Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Kieran Odeshorn. Our theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like this show, please support it. <laughs>